Lots of news abound here on February 20th, 2020. This is MLB Morning Coffee. We're going to vary the intro up a little bit, so weird trombone noise, take us away. Good morning, baseball fans, and welcome to Episode 4 of MLB Morning Coffee. My name is Greg Mraz, your host, as per usual. We've got lots of baseball headlines abound, and we've got what I would say is actually a pretty sensitive subject to talk about on today's main segment. And I do want to tell people that I'm not going to cross any lines with what my main opinion is in regards to this subject, and I'll actually tease you with it right now just so that you get prepared for what we're going to talk about and that's Aubrey Huff the former San Francisco Giants first baseman who has made headlines of recent because he was not invited back for the Giants 2010 World Series championship reunion which will be taking place this year but before we get to that we will get to as we do every day the daily grounds We're going to lead off this segment of the Daily Grounds with somebody that we've already talked about a couple of times on this podcast, Chris Bryant. Hi, Chris. Yes, hi, Chris, indeed. Bryant announced to the media yesterday that he is going to be the Cubs' leadoff hitter. Now, that comes as a surprise to many, and a lot of people didn't want to believe it at first, but manager David Ross ended up confirming it when he met with the media a little bit later in the day down in Mesa. There have often been contrasting opinions about what a leadoff hitter should be. On one hand, people believe a leadoff hitter is somebody that should be fast and be able to steal bases once they get on base. The other one, and I think now is the more popular opinion, is that a leadoff hitter should be somebody that gets on base. Nobody is ever going to classify Chris Bryant as a speedster, but if you look at the on-base percentages for him in his first five years in the big leagues... 369, 385, 409, that was in 2017, 374, and last year, 382. So he actually had a higher on-base percentage in the year that he did not win MVP 2017 than the year he did win MVP in 2016. Ever since Dexter Fowler left the Cubs after the 2016 World Series season, the Cubs have had a very difficult time finding a real leadoff hitter. But what this move effectively says is that Bryant isn't going anywhere. The leadoff spot is a really important spot for the Cubs. And now, with Bryant in the leadoff spot, you're going to have a first three in the order that include him, Anthony Rizzo, and Javi Baez. I assume that trying to balance and go left, right, left, they're going to go with Bryant in the leadoff hole, Rizzo will bat two, and Javier Baez will hit three. You've got a guy in Anthony Rizzo that's a perennial 90-RBI guy. You've got Javier Baez, who two years ago could have won the MVP. He lost just barely to Christian Yelich of the Brewers. And a former MVP is your leadoff guy. A lot is being said about the Cubs in terms of whether or not this is going to be it. And granted, a lot of our talk was centered around Chris Bryant two episodes ago about why it's silly for the Cubs to trade him. However, while they still might trade him in the future... Signaling him as the leadoff man indicates for now that they're in it to win it this season, and I think every Chicago fan should be happy about that. Let's take you now to Minnesota. In a move that was highly expected once the Twins signed Josh Donaldson, it was officially announced that Miguel Sano was going to be moving to first base. 
Sano posted in a video to Donaldson that, quote, I will move to first base only for you. Now, this is going to be very interesting because Sano is a career third baseman. The Twins tried him briefly in right field back in 2016, and that didn't work. However, the signing of a guy like Josh Donaldson says that, just like we just mentioned with the Cubs and Bryant, that the Twins are in it to win it this season. He had a career-high 34 homers last season. He helped lead the Twins to the AL Central title and received a three-year contract extension. But we'll be moving to a brand-new position. I don't know if any of you saw the movie Moneyball and saw the one scene where Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt, and Ron Washington, the A's third base coach at the time, come over to Scott Hatterberg's house and tell them that he's going to play first base. And Billy Bean says, playing first base is not that hard. And Ron Washington says, it's incredibly hard. I may have just ended up paraphrasing that quote, but it's not easy to learn a new position, especially when you've been playing on the other side of the diamond for your entire career. It's a lot easier for guys to move into the outfield because it is not as difficult to learn a lot of the cadences of playing the outfield than it is to be playing a cadence of the infield. I think that if you learn to be an infielder, you can adjust to being an outfielder. If you grow up being an outfielder, it's almost impossible to become an infielder. But manager Rocco Baldelli is impressed so far with the work that Sano has put in at first base. Quote, he looks great. It's a couple of years in a row now where he's really done this and made a point to invest in himself and to dedicate his offseason to his preparation and his body. And I think he looks like a supreme athlete. Anyone can play first base or third base or shortstop or second base at some level, Baldelli continued. But to do it at a high level, you have to work and you have to have ability. And Miguel has that ability. We have seen him. He has the ability to go over and play some third base. He can certainly learn first base and do a nice job for us. Now, while I do think it's going to be a lot more difficult of a transition than just saying, oh, I can work one offseason at first base and that'll be done, if he ends up being an above-average defensive first baseman, that's going to provide the Twins depth, especially with Donaldson in the lineup, that just makes them that much more dangerous in the AL this season. The Los Angeles Dodgers lineup after the acquisition of outfielder Mookie Betts from the Red Sox is looking as dangerous as ever. How dangerous, you might ask? It might be their best lineup ever, said Charlie Huff, who pitched in the big leagues for more than 25 years and now serves as a special advisor to the Dodgers front office. This current lineup, which has four 30 home run hitters in Mookie Betts, Cody Bellinger, Max Muncy, and Jock Peterson, has a chance to do something really special. Last year, the Dodgers set a National League record with 279 homers. They scored a team record 886 runs, which also led the National League. And in Dodgers franchise history in the modern era, only the 1953 Dodgers scored more runs than the 2019 team. I think a lot of people felt that the trade of Betts to the Dodgers were the rich get richer. And while Betts didn't accept the supposed contract offer that was given to him by the Red Sox, and that's why the Red Sox felt like they needed to trade him, there are also no guarantees that the Dodgers are going to sign Betts past this year anyways. That being said, this is one of those teams that you feel like has to win it now or the window is probably going to close. They have a lot of young, projectable superstars and guys like Cody Bellinger and Corey Seager. But they also have guys like Jock Peterson, who might be looking to go elsewhere after he was almost traded down I-5 to the Angels, as well as Max Muncy, who, let's just 
call a spade a spade, has had an unexpected career resurgence after flaming out in the Oakland A's organization. In any event, I think the Dodgers are going to be the best team in the National League and probably will get back to the World Series for the third time in four years. Last year's iteration of the Dodgers was a disappointment because people thought that was the best version of them ever. Their lineup could be just as good, if not better, this year than it was last year based on the numbers that we just gave you. However, anything can happen, but the expectations for this Dodgers team going into spring training of 2020 are as high as they've ever been in the Dave Roberts era. In what is going to be our sign-stealing segment of the day here on the Daily Grounds, Mike Fires came out and spoke yesterday and said, I can defend myself and that he doesn't need any extra protection from Major League Baseball during the 2020 season. Fires was quoted yesterday to The Athletic as saying, I don't know how they would. I'm not asking for extra security. I'm here to play baseball, and I can defend myself, if anything. We do have National League games, and I'm going to have to get into the box to hit, just like everybody else. It's a part of the game. If they decide to throw at me, then they throw at me. There's nothing much you can do about it. I think for a guy like Mike Fires, who basically started the avalanche that is this sign-stealing scandal, there might be some retaliation against him. But based on those statements, it does not seem like he is afraid at all. Mike Fires comes off to me as the type of guy that just wants to go about his business and just pitch in baseball games. And that's pretty much it. He made a courageous move to come out like he did and attach his name to a story, which in situations like this, you see a lot of people either go off the record or go on the record anonymously. He put his name to it, and while he is being considered a hero in many circles, there are many that felt like he broke that unwritten code of conduct that stays within the clubhouse. Personally, in a situation like this, where the integrity of the game is being devalued as much as it is, I don't think that he did anything wrong, and if any of his former teammates, who are showing absolutely no remorse over what they did, are angry at him, then so what? I think in the minds of the fans and in the minds of the fellow players, Mike Fires is more popular than any other Houston Astro from that 2017 at this point in time. In fact, I think it's gotten to a point where a lot of those players that are still on the team have been completely ostracized by their fellow players. It's difficult for guys like Charlie Morton, who was on that team and is now in Tampa Bay, or a guy like Marwin Gonzalez, who is now in Minnesota, and Tony Kemp, who is now in Oakland and did not, or at least per what he says, did not participate in the sign-stealing scheme to just go about their business. Based on the comments, Fires doesn't seem to care what might happen to him if he steps into the box during the 2000 and 20 season. But what Fires is most concerned about is just quite simply winning baseball games. And I think we need a little bit more of that from players in the Houston Astros clubhouse and in some senses around Major League Baseball going forward. Fires is the one that started it, but obviously, as we said, this whole scandal is far from over. But for Fires, he does not have very many concerns when it comes to his personal safety in the 2020 season. And based on the reaction that we've seen from the majority of Major League Baseball, there's no reason for him to feel like he should. Our final segment on the Daily Grounds comes courtesy of the Milwaukee Brewers. 2018 NL MVP Christian Yelich spoke to reporters yesterday down in Merivale, Arizona about his motivation for this season. 
Yelich was going to have an opportunity to win his second straight NL MVP award, but his season got cut short on September 10th when he fouled a pitch off of his right kneecap and broke it. Yelich was actually having, at least by a power numbers standpoint, a better season than he did in 2018. Last year, he hit 329 with 44 homers and 97 RPI in 130 games. After in 2018, a full season, he hit 326 with 36 homers and 110 RBI. It's going to be a much different lineup around Yelich, though, this season, as he has lost guys such as Jesus Aguilar, Eric Thames, Mike Moustakas, Yasmani Grandal, as well as third baseman Travis Shaw. Now, the Brewers did add Brock Holt yesterday on a minor league contract, and I think they're expecting a big bounce back from him. But there's still a lot of talent around that Milwaukee Brewer lineup. You still have Lorenzo Cain in the lineup, and you have a budding offensive superstar in second baseman Keston Hiura. As I said a couple of days ago, I think the NL Central is going to be one of the most competitive divisions in baseball, and the Brewers are going to need all of Yelich's best if they're going to compete in the 2020 season. That is the Daily Grounds. We do it pretty much every day here on MLB Morning Coffee. And now we're going to get into the main segment of today's podcast, and we teased that at the beginning, and that is Aubrey Huff. I was a senior in high school in the fall of 2010 when the Giants won their first World Series in San Francisco history. I say San Francisco history because the franchise had won championships in New York, but since they had moved out to San Francisco in the year 1958, they had not won in the city by the bay. And Aubrey Huff was a huge part of that 2010 team that in many ways came out of nowhere to beat a Padres team that was neck and neck with them in the standings the entire season. They go on and they play the Atlanta Braves in the NLDS. The Giants win that series. Most notably, Braves infielder Brooks Conrad made a key error in Game 3 in Atlanta that helped give the Giants the win. The Giants then go on. They play the Philadelphia Phillies, who at that time were the defending World Series champion, and they took care of business against the Phillies, and then they go play the Texas Rangers in the World Series, and they take care of business there, and Huff was a huge part of that. And Aubrey Huff was as beloved at the time as any giant on that team, just because that I remember that team distinctly, and they had just a bunch of cult heroes from guys like Cody Ross to an insane rotation of Tim Lincecum and Matt Cain and Jonathan Sanchez. The early years of Madison Bumgarner. Edgar Renteria hit a critical home run in the World Series that basically sealed the deal for Los Gigantes. And Pablo Sandoval, who was butting into a star in front of our very eyes. Also, remember that that was Buster Posey's rookie year. He was not the opening day catcher that season. It was Benji Molina. Now, I'm doing a little bit of rehashing of what that team was and the characters that were on that team, and the reason I preface that is to give you the kind of impact that Aubrey Huff had that year. For the 2010 Giants, he played in 157 of the 162 games. He hit 290. He had an on-base of 385. He hit 26 homers, drove in 86, and finished 7th in MVP voting. 7th. He was a critical part of that 2010 team, which 
And again, a lot of people think of the modern Giants, the first baseman now is Brandon Belt. And Brandon Belt transitioned as Huff transitioned out. The Giants gave Huff a contract extension. He was only with the Giants on a one-year deal and an okay year in 2011 and then completely fell off the rails in 2012, and that was it for his career. But as Huff eased into retirement, he started to become more known for his inappropriate social media posts. Now, I'm someone that is not averse to a hot take or a controversial opinion on Twitter, as long as it doesn't offend anybody. But Aubrey Huff, consistently on social media, has done things that are, let's just say, unbecoming of most people. Huff has made it well known that he's a conservative, and he's somebody that is willing to speak his mind on his conservatism. But he has also spoken his mind in a way that is violent and misogynistic. He posted on Twitter in November of last year a picture of him and his two sons at a gun range, and he said, getting my boys trained up on how to use a gun in the unlikely event Bernie Sanders beats Donald Trump in 2020, in which case knowing how to effectively use a gun under socialism will be a most. By the way, most of the headshots were theirs, and he's referring to uh, targets that are in the picture behind them. Uh, he also decided to criticize Alyssa Nacken, who is the first female coach in Major League Baseball history and a coach hired by the San Francisco Giants. He posted on Twitter when Nacken was hired, I got in trouble, this is him, quote, I got in trouble for wearing a thong in my own clubhouse when female reporters were present. Can't imagine how it will play out with a full-time female coach running around. This has hashtag me too and hashtag believe all women written all over it. Only in SF Giants. And then he follows up with a tweet that says, couldn't imagine taking baseball instruction from an ex-female softball player. Have fun with that. And he tags Brandon Crawford, Brandon, Brandon Belt, and Buster Posey. In the United States of America, the First Amendment gives you the right to free speech. And I'm not going to criticize anybody that uses the right to free speech. But I think that there is 1,000% a line of what is and what isn't acceptable by social standards. And Aubrey Huff, time and time again, when he has been given the opportunity to say something respectful or to say something degrading, he has chosen the degrading path every single time. I don't want to go back and read any more posts from him. I gave you enough offensive material in terms of what he has put out in relation to women and in relation to violence. Now, it's pretty clear that he is a conservative and he is a Donald Trump supporter. And he makes the argument that Larry Bear said that he was not invited back for the upcoming reunion because of the fact that he is a Donald Trump supporter. Now, you have to remember, San Francisco is one of the most liberal cities in the United States. So the majority of Giants fans, and I'm not going to speak for everybody because I don't know everybody. I don't know everybody's political connections. I live in the city of San Francisco. I have met plenty of conservatives who are Giants fans. And I don't want to go Fiesta Politico here, but I think in a situation like this, it is important to understand that 
whether you're a Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative, you have to abide by the rules of social decency. And that's frankly just as simplistic as not inciting violence, not making statements that are going to be offensive to women, which he has done time and time again. And it is well within the right of the Giants to say, we don't want to be associated with you. And I don't know what he was like as a player within that clubhouse, but I'm sure that there are enough guys on that team that probably have seen what Huff has done and say, I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want him around because he's going to make it about something that isn't what we accomplished in 2010. Now, we wouldn't know that unless we were able to get a lot of those guys probably off the record because nobody is going to really want to speak to this on the record. And Gary Peterson of the Bay Area News Group actually wrote a really good opinion piece about what Huff did yesterday, and that was send a response back to Larry Bear on Twitter. Not directly at him, but he posted a statement on Twitter. And I was initially going to read from that statement, but in all honesty, I don't think there's anything that can be accomplished from that because you can go and read it for yourself if you want to, but it's basically a whole lot of jargon that, quite frankly, I think is BS and completely disrespectful, otherwise known as on par for the Aubrey Huff brand. But I do want to read a little bit from the piece that Peterson wrote for the Bay Area News Group. Aubrey Huff's response to Giants ban shows exactly why team distance itself. And this is how he starts the article. This misfit is fighting back, and it's not going well. Aubrey Huff, a member of the quirky, unlikely Giants 2010 World Series championship team, immortalized in a book as the Band of Misfits, is railing against the Giants because they have barred him from the 10-year reunion of that team scheduled for August 26th. The team put out a statement that said, quote, Aubrey has made multiple comments on social media that are counter to the values of the organization. And I think that that's simple enough. And the article basically goes on to filter through Huff's social media and pull up examples of why he's not representative of what the Giants want. I think that the straw that broke the camel's back, though, was in regards to his post on Alyssa Nacken, when he's basically throwing out all these terms by saying that she's not qualified and that it's part of the Me Too movement. Now, remember, a lot of that was a movement started by very liberal women, and as we obviously know, Aubrey Huff is a mega-conservative. You cannot, as an organization, say that you are at the forefront of women in baseball like the Giants are. They just hired the first female coach in Major League Baseball history. I remember a few years ago when the Seattle Mariners hired, I believe her name was Amanda Hopkins, as the first female scout in Major League Baseball history. There are a lot of high-ranking women in Major League Baseball. And given what he has said and given what he has done, if the Giants had willingly invited him back, that would have been a lack of respect for Alyssa Nacken. And you couldn't do that. 
there's no way that the organization could save face, given the problems that they had last year with controversial campaign contributions from the ownership group and Larry Bear getting caught on cell phone video shoving his wife at a park in Hayes Valley. The Giants don't need any more PR disasters. And if Huff had come back, it would have been a complete PR disaster. The problem is, is that Huff has no remorse for what he's saying. And quite frankly, if it weren't the fact that he was a big part of that team, he would be 1,000% somebody to be ignored. In fact, he was so to be ignored that he briefly had a morning show host job here in the Bay Area at 95.7 the game and was quickly let go because, well, he wasn't very good. But Aubrey Huff is not somebody that can ever enter the lexicon of this conversation again as being somebody that is related to the organization until he eventually apologizes or shows any sort of remorse for what he has done on social media. And what kind of example is he setting for his kids and people that look up to him that he's willing to just put out these statements just for the fun of it or because he actually believes that? He believes in misogyny? And that he claims that he's like putting these statements out as like jokes? I'm sorry. That's not something you joke about. Like ever. You don't joke about misogyny. You don't joke about disrespect of women. Ever. Ever, 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 ever. And he has lost all respect from the public because of what he has done. And I don't think that he's a guy that we'll really ever hear from again in San Francisco. You'll obviously hear from him again on social media, but I want to, in closing of this segment, and we're not ending the show, we actually have one more little new segment that we're going to throw in here. I think in closing the book on what Aubrey Huff is in relation to the San Francisco Giants, when you think about the dynasty of 2010, 2012, and 2014, who are the guys that you think of? You think of Buster Posey. You think of Brandon Crawford. You think of Hunter Pence. You, in some ways, think of Angel Pagan. You think of the pitchers like Lincecum and Kane and obviously Bumgarner. You think of guys like Javier Lopez and Jeremy Affeld out of the bullpen and to an extent Santiago Casilla and Sergio Romo. You don't think about Aubrey Huff. And for Huff to say, as he did a couple of days ago, that they wouldn't be having a reunion without me, okay, sure, they really appreciated his contributions to that season. It was one of his best seasons in his pro career. But for him to just come out and say that when everybody remembers Tim Linscom striking out 14 Braves in game one of the NLDS, I'm sorry, dude. You're asking for attention that nobody here is going to give you. And with your views and what you put out on social media, it shows your true colors. And you're going to get no remorse from anybody here. And when the Giants do have that reunion, and I'm not sure exactly what day it is this year, when they do assemble 
all of the greats that were on that 2010 team, there will not be a tear shed for your absence. Huff can be upset about it all he wants, but in the grand scheme of why he's not there, he has nobody to blame but himself. Yeah, I know that might be getting a little bit heavy here on MLB Morning Coffee. It's obviously a morning podcast, and that's a subject I really wanted to talk about. And I probably could have gone a little bit more in-depth, but I just didn't feel like it was worth rehashing so many painful and cringeworthy social media posts and quotes from him that just further dig him the hole that he so rightfully deserves. And now with our final segment of the day, we're going to do a really cool stat segment that I'll just simply call Check It Out. Check it out! So by the way, I literally named this segment Check It Out just so that I could put that sounder in there. So this is going to be a mainly stats-based segment, and we are going to start by examining Chris Paddock of the San Diego Padres. He was in the Padres' opening day rotation last season, despite having never pitched above double-A. And last year, he had a 33.3% chase rate, which meant that 33.3% of his pitches were swung at outside of what is defined as the strike zone. He was 10th among the 112 pitchers who threw at least 1,000 out-of-the-zone pitches in 2019, which led to a 27% strikeout rate, a 5.5% walk rate, and a 32.3% hard hit rate, which basically meant that most of the balls that were getting put in play were on weak contact. MLB.com today came out with a list of 10 Dark Horse Cy Young candidates, and he is the number one choice in the National League. So I think that when you talk about somebody like Chris Paddock and you look at those numbers, they might just be numbers to you, but as the Padres climb closer and closer to competitive respectability in the National League with stars like Manny Machado and Eric Hosmer and a host of highly talented homegrown prospects such as Fernando Tatis Jr., A guy like Paddock is going to be critical if they're going to have success in 2020. And based on his results from last season, I think it's pretty clear that they will. That's going to do it for Episode 4 of MLB Morning Coffee. If you have not yet, please write a review, leave a rating, and hit that subscribe button. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you in the AM.